Well, God bless you, kids. So the doctor's call confirmed what they felt was true. She started picking out pink. He was looking at blue. Dreams of Barbie dolls and baseballs began to fill their minds. After many disappointing years, it was finally time. The baby's vacant room the mother's empty womb would now be made complete. The revelation of their wedded love, hope relieved, seemed little time await, a small chore. Resting in their arms, sleeping on their lap, this precious little life was worth waiting for through the gap. But there's one who waited longer still. Before time's clock began counting down, this baby was in the sovereign's will. Dreamed by God, his joy and crown, with a purpose and a plan and a name so strong, a destiny so great, nothing at all wrong. The shout of the king echoed across time and space. Creator's delight, beaming face, only God could know who this child will be. Or will a strike be made by tragedy? Life cut short, dreams dashed, hope cut down, destiny smashed. The audacious act of one so brash, treating a life divinely conceived like it's trash. Stealing breath, pilfering purpose, discarded destiny, snuffing out a soul, cutting it short of its God-ordained goal. As this victim's blood is spilled, God's heart is crushed. It's not what he willed. Those who, those were his dreams in that human son. Now they're crushed. Now they're buried, stolen by the evil one. A life song silenced, no more to make a sound. Blood soaked down into the ground. The earth itself groans in the night. When will this wrong? be made right. This morning I want to ask the question, what's the price you put on a human life? What's the value of a, of a human life? What kind of valuation do you put on a life that was conceived before time began? To do that, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine the world before there was a world. I want you to try to imagine empty space. In fact, 
Try to imagine life before there was space, outside of space. Try to imagine nothing before nothing. In order to create from nothing, God had to first make nothing. Nothing is a concept in our world, not in his. We're told that the observable universe is 46, approximately 46 billion light years from end to end and side to side. It contains more than a trillion galaxies like our own Milky Way, each galaxy containing billions of stars and planets and solar systems, many of those being much, much larger than our own Earth and Sun and Moon and planets. If you can fathom it, there's a star called the Alpha Scorpii A that's 690 million times larger than our own sun. Can't even fathom it. If you think of a blizzard containing an incalculable number of snowflakes, earth and life as we know it would be contained on just one of the snowflakes falling from the icy sky. The next time you see a snowstorm, maybe this week, out your window and imagine, man, all of life on one of the, everything I know on one of those snowflakes, that's what you're talking about. Yet somewhere, somehow, the dreamer, the designer, the creator of it all, he set his affection on this snowflake called earth. Even more than that, God actually gave his heart to each individual person, to you and to me. God looked down through time and he saw you before there was a you. And he loved you then. That's true. God loved you before there was a you to love. He determined the exact time in which you would live. It was his choice to bring you to this planet right now. He designed you with breathtaking potential, and he intended for you to fit perfectly into a plan. You with your IQ, you with your skin color, you with your gender, with your culture, with your language, with your talents and your abilities, imagined all in the mind of a creator who saw you long before there ever was a you. Now, can you imagine the tragedy of being snuffed out like a candle before you have the opportunity to become what you were made to become? Think of it. Like cancer is a terrible thing that confronts humanity. Imagine if the person who held the cure to cancer was murdered before they found the cure. Is it possible that we would have already found the cure to cancer by now? But because of the senseless taking of human life, we're slowed as a human race to discovering its cure? Or how about the depths of space? They defy the human imagination. What if the person who would discover warp speed was tragically taken out by the thoughtless act of a murderer? What if the next Billy Graham the next Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, name one, is the latest victim reported in the newspaper. In fact, I wonder, speaking of Martin Luther King, and I just wonder, 
I wonder what condition race relations would be like in the United States today if Martin Luther King had been permitted to live and not cut short. Because certainly race relations have a, a lot that's gone on has not represented Mr. King. I think he would be deeply disturbed by a lot that he sees. I just wonder. See, the audacity of murder, the audacity of murder is that it takes this plan that God has had in motion since before the beginning of time and it attacks it. Murder doesn't just take a life. Murder actually robs God of someone that he has dreamed about since before time began. God did not create you to be murdered. He created you with an inestimable potential, and he's been waiting since before creation to see it unfold in your life. And a person who murders is not only trying to play God by taking life and death into their own hands, but they're actually attacking God, directly robbing God of being able to see the potential that he put within that person become a reality. Who has the right to remove a life? Only the one who created it. Anybody else, it's not their place. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, it says this, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. God and God alone is the one who holds the keys of life and death. It's the most outlandish act of pride for one human being to think that somehow they can determine the death of another human being. So God says very plainly in the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. It's a simple statement. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments for the last several weeks, and now we're at the sixth one. You shall not murder. It's direct, gets to the point, leaves no wiggle room, murder, don't do it. And I get that on, a, on one level, right? Because I don't want to be murdered. So I want to live out the golden rule. So I, if, I don't want to be, if I don't want to get murdered, then I'm not going to murder. Right? Sort of, if we just follow the golden rule, you can eliminate murder altogether, right? But I'm still left with questions. Like, uh, like where does it come from? Where does it originate? We live in a very interesting time now when we think that murder comes from the weapon. Take away the nukes and there won't be any war. <laughs> Silly people. There was war long before nukes, and if you remove nukes, there will still be war. We think, take away guns and there won't be any more murder. Oh, funny. I wish it was that easy. Cain killed Abel with a rock. The weapon is inconsequential. The weapon is not the problem. Murder is an issue of the heart, my friend. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is talking to religious leaders, and he didn't have very nice things to say to them. He tells them this, you belong to your father, the devil. Can you imagine Jesus telling a bunch of nice church guys that? And that's exactly what this was. They were nice church guys. In fresh from their service, Jesus goes, you belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So murder comes from the devil. He's been a murderer from the beginning. Murder is his goal. Lies are his weapon. You understand the devil doesn't need to ever pull the trigger. He just tells enough lies until finally someone does. It's how he operates. He's the prince of pain. He's the host of hatred. He's the diva of destruction. The mater d of murder. The MC of mayhem. The king of killing. The bulwark of bad. Let me think of another one. I don't. Okay. Anyway, you get it. The devil himself. It's his signature move, man. It's his signature move. Jesus says that he steals, kills, destroys. That's what he does. So every murderer is motivated and encouraged by the minions of hell, whose mission it is to steal and kill and destroy. But when we live in a world and when we live in a culture that doesn't want to accept the existence of hell, then we have to find something else to blame. And you add to that that we live in a culture where we don't want to take personal responsibility. So we always go for the easiest thing to blame. And the murder weapon is pretty easy to blame. It's pretty black and white. It's pretty hard and fast. Easy to blame. Not the actual murderer. And God forbid we would want to blame our own culture that we've been building for 40, 50 years now that basically feeds it. You go, what's the root of murder? It's a good question. Jesus addresses that issue. I love Jesus for that. In Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22, he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, thou shalt not murder, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I just love Jesus. I love how he's able to get right to the heart of the matter in just a few words. Jesus deals with the heart of the issue. The issue of murder, according to Jesus, is not the murder weapon. It's the angry heart behind the weapon. The truth is, every murderer, think of this, every murderer is judgmental. It's the ultimate judgmental act. Because the murderer deems another person unworthy of life, judging their behavior as punishable by death, so they take it into their own hands. But I don't even have to pull the trigger. In judgment, I basically put a person, put a person to death long before that happens, because I deem them unworthy because of their behavior, because of the hurt that they've caused in me. I judge them. Or maybe not even the hurt that they've caused me. I just judge the way they look. I judge the way they act. I just judge them. Sometimes it's not anger that's specifically directed at, some, at another person. Sometimes, you know, anger is just a condition of the soul. When we say anger, it's not I got mad. It's not I, I blew up and kick the dog. That's, that's getting mad. That's having a rough moment. But anger is more about an issue of the soul 
understand that? It's, it's this seething, and it builds up over time, and anger boils into violence, Jesus would say. Friends, uh, it's a result of our culture. You, you, you can't tell people that they come from nothing and then say there's something special. We instinctively know that that's stupid. You can't tell people that they're animals and then be shocked when they act like animals. We instinctively know that that doesn't add up. And then you add to that homes that are torn apart, fatherless homes. You add you, confusion of, of a culture that, that says all roads are the same, which we know isn't true. That says everybody is a winner, which we know isn't true. You add all of these messages that get fed to people over the last 50 years, and it produces this sense of anger inside the soul that has to take expression somewhere. And Jesus, look at rejection is another one. Rejection is actually the root of every school shooting. Think about it. It's never Never the star quarterback and the captain of the cheerleading team that perpetrates the crime. Why? Because they're riding high, man. They, they got the, they've got the school in their back pocket. They're popular. They're loving life. It's always the person that's on the fringe that's experienced rejection. Not one, not two, maybe bullied a little bit over time, over time. Add a few things into the soup, and it boils over into violence. You don't have to commit a crime to be a victim of rejection. A number of us are victims of rejection. A number of us, you know, rejection becomes a way that you see the world. It becomes how you see things. If you're sitting here this morning and you tend to always feel like, you know, like it's just everything's against you. Life's always working against you. That's rejection. You're seeing life through a rejection filter. You feel like everybody hates you. Like just, you find your relationships always go south quick. Like people are always disappointing you. People always letting you down. Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe they're not letting you down, but maybe the issue is that you're perceiving all of their actions through a filter of rejection? It's very possible. So rejection, judgmentalism, anger, kind of in this soup in the soul. And you take it over the last 40, 50 years in a culture with all these other crazy, wacky things that get taught and stuff happening and people start breaking. Listen, Jesus says, you take care of the anger issue, you can solve the murder issue. But listen, you can't solve the anger issue apart from Jesus. <laughs> you can't tell people that they've come from animals and then be surprised they act like animals. Do you understand, friends? Darwinism, secular humanism, it removes purpose and destiny from the life of human beings. We instinctively know that if there is no God, then nothing matters. And so if, right? And if nothing matters, then... I can do whatever I want to do. 
In fact, we're even told that, aren't we? Hey, you can do whatever feels right to you. You can be anything that you want. And then someone says, well, great, I want to take the life of others. Oh, no, you can't do that. Well, wait a second, I thought you just told me I could do whatever I felt like I wanted to do. Oh, I guess not that feeling. Well, which is it? You understand why we need moral laws? You understand why you can't remove God out of the picture? Because if you do, everything starts to crumble. Someone quipped recently that uh, people blame Jesus for not stopping school shootings, and Jesus' reply is, well, you kicked me out of the schools a long time ago. And I think, well, that's cute. It's simplistic. You can put it on a bumper sticker. It's nice. There's some truth in it. Honestly, it's not real deep. The truth is, if you want a culture without God, you can't ask God to save your culture. And if you want to stop these kinds of shootings, these kinds of things, you've got to begin to teach our kids that they have hope. You've got to begin to teach them that they've been lovingly created with a divine purpose and a destiny, that there is such a thing as a right and a wrong. And so can we look at this more deeply? Why is murder wrong? Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It says, whoever sheds... I, I was, I, I'm trying to read... I'm disciplining myself to try to read these today. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It says, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Why is murder wrong? Because each person has been made in the image of God. Each person has the divine stamp on their life. God made us, and he declared, dang, that's good. God God made you, and he goes, I did a great job there. God made you. He's happy with what he made. He loves what he made. God's like, yeah, you look just like me, man. Good. No one was more excited on the day that you were born than God. Because no one waited longer for you to be born than God. No one has more invested in your life than God. And on the day that those two cells, if you think about it, oh, how amazing the miracle of life is. Two cells come together and you are conceived. You came to be. Amazing. You weren't before. Two cells come together and there you are. It's amazing. On that moment, a shout could be heard reverberating through the heavens as the king of the universe said, yes, finally you're here. Woo! Yeah, I've been waiting for you for a gazillion years. Finally you're here. You can hear God doing the jig, dancing, because you have finally made it. And he's been waiting for you all these years. He knew you were coming now, and he's so glad that you're here. Can you even begin to imagine the profound sense of loss that God must feel when a life gets tragically cut short by the evil act of murder? How much is one life worth? I mean, what kind of price can you put on that? on a life that was so conceived, how can you even begin to put a price tag on it? Right? What's the value 
of such a life, so designed, so long-weighted, so infused with divine potential. Like, what's the value of that life? Exodus 21, verse 12, it says this. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. Leviticus 24, verse 21, it says, Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. See, this is part of ancient, ancient Israel's civil code. See, if I, kill your ac- if I kill your ox, well, I have to pay you back for it. You can put a price on an animal's head. That's easy. Uh, and there's a market price for animals. But what's the market price for humans? There's no price. So that's why capital punishment's the only reasonable response of a just society. It's life for a life. There's no other price that equals it. Consider the injustice of someone killing me, taking me from my wife and my family, only then to use tax dollars taken from their hard-earned ages, wages to support my murderer for the rest of his life on earth. So my family loses me, and they have to pay to keep my, my murderer warm and well-fed with HBO for the rest of his life. That's not justice. Where's the restitution from my life lost? See, the Bible's, uh, the Bible's talking restitution. And if I, if, I, if I kill your ox, okay, I make restitution. I get you another ox, maybe two oxes to make up for it. But you can't do that with a human life. You can't, I can't just write you a check and somehow make up for the loss of that life. It doesn't work. The only way a life is measured by another life. So can there be any justice? The argument is often given. Some of you might be saying that now. Well, hey, putting a murderer to death doesn't bring back the dead loved one. True. You're right. But according to the Bible, that's not the issue. According to the Bible, the issue is purging the evil from society and not permitting it to stay and rot society from the inside out. Look at what Scripture says. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. It says, For your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. So in the verses that we read earlier, we saw, right, that the accounting that God has us, he demands for the life of an animal. Uh, The one who wrongly kills an animal has to make restitution. I think we could probably update that to, you know, if if I crash your car, I have to buy you another one. Same sort of idea, right? It's why I have insurance to help me out with that expense if I happen to wreck your car. Animals, they're possessions. Cars are possessions. They have values. But people are not possessions. People are not animals. And God demands an accounting for the life of human beings. Go to Numbers chapter 35, verses 30 to 34. If you want to turn in your Bibles, I don't have it on there because it's too long of a passage, but I also like to make us use the Bible on Sunday mornings too. So If you have your Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 35, verses 30 to 34. It goes into a little more detail. He says, 
Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. So there's a safeguard there. Do not accept, look at verse 31, very clear. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. They are to be put to death. Verse 32, do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge and so allow them to go back and live on their own land before the death of a high priest. So he's, I wish I had time to go into the whole cities of refuge thing, but it was basically set up so that if you were guilty of manslaughter, because accidents happen, they do. So if there's not an intentional, you know, an act, that's not a murder, right? A murder is an intentional act. Uh, manslaughter is unintentional. An accident happened. It's so misfortunate. It's so unfortunate, right? So they had a system for that, the cities of refuge. And then verse 33 it says, do not pollute the land. This is the interesting part. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. And atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. Do not pollute the land. Do not defile the land. Bloodshed defiles it. Bloodshed pollutes the land. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 13. He says, show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. Notice that bloodshed actually pollutes the land. This is a people, of course, an agricultural people. So their, their livelihood is linked to the land. It's how they provided for themselves. So a polluted land would not be good for the economy. It would not be good for the whole nation, right? And I wonder, now, you know, of course, we're not agricultural really anymore in an industrialized society, so I wonder how much of our own economy, though, as a nation has been affected by bloodshed. I, I, I'm, I don't need, I'm sure somebody smarter than me can run the numbers, but I bet you it's a lot. See, the word pollute here in verse 33, it literally means godless. So bloodshed makes the land godless. It removes God. It removes His blessing from the land. In other words, injustice Allowing a murderer to live is injustice, and it makes our land godless, and it removes God's blessing from it. You say, well, yeah, but I mean, that's, you know, but one of the other arguments against it is, well, but the system makes mistakes. Sometimes we put people to death who were innocent. Tragic, absolutely tragic. It's why we must make a very certain We've got to be absolutely positive, certain we've got to do that, right? Must do diligence to make sure that justice is served. But the key there is this. We must understand something. This is not spoken to you and me as individuals. I do not have the authority to go and put someone to death. You do not have that authority. 
However, our society, our government, does. It's one of the roles of human government is to punish wrong. This is speaking about human government. God gives that authority to human government. And when human government fails in its responsibility to uphold justice, it leaves the whole nation shaky. When laws are broken, when elected officials, and when elected officials are leading the way and breaking them, the destruction of our nation is not far behind. The Bible is very clear about murder. Capital punishment is the only way for a murder to be made right. The value of a human life is a human life because there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like you. <laughs> some of you go, some of us are saying, thank the Lord, there's only one of me. Even you, even, there's nothing else like you, friends. Even if you're not born yet. How valuable is an unborn child? Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 and 23 says something very interesting. You can see the text there. If people are fighting and they hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely but there's no serious injury, well, then the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there's a serious injury, meaning the life of the baby, the life of the mother, then you're to take life for life. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? So the life of that unborn child has the same exact value as one who has been born. It's life for life. Isn't that fascinating? You say, well, now, where do we go from here? So clearly murder is wrong. And kind of the danger of this morning's message is that we would walk away and go, wow, that was some interesting points. Doug made some nice points about murder in the Bible. That's great. And then just have it, fine, not really apply to me because I'm not planning on murdering anybody. So I guess today's message really isn't about me. <laughs> so I'm good. Whew. You got a you pass today. You got a freebie. No, you don't. Romans chapter 13 verse 10. I just want to close with this. Romans 13 10. He says love does no harm to its neighbor. The, the whole text, verses 8 to 10, he, he says that, the, that these commands, do not murder, do not commit adultery, all those, he says, are summed up with this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 10 summarizes it by saying love does no harm to its neighbor. That word harm is an interesting word. It's the Greek word kakos, and it literally means an inner foul or rotten on the inside. So, so to do no harm to my neighbor, it, it, it means I'm not even having an inner foul towards them. I don't have a foul attitude towards them. In other words, I can do harm to my neighbor without ever even touching them. See, we got to get to the heart of the issue, right? The heart, the, Jesus goes, okay, yeah, don't murder. Great, okay, now the heart. Let's deal with that angry heart. Let's, let's deal with that inner foul, that harm. That, that thing in you that goes, I could never forgive him for that. Well, my friend, it's time for you to do that. 
or the tendency even to judge that person because they did this or that or you perceive that they've done this or that. Time to deal with that. Loving my neighbor starts with my own attitude toward them. And if I have an inner foul or if I have a rottenness in my heart towards someone else, I need to deal with it. And that's our challenge. And then the second one is this. So the travesty of murder is, let me summarize this. The travesty of murder is this, that, that God, if you can try, try to communicate, God is robbed of the potential that he put within you. He marked you with his image. You're stamped. So you look just like your dad. You look just like him. And, and he put his image on you, and he's, and he's put potential within you. And the, and the travesty of murder is that some other human being actually steals that away. It's senseless. It's, it's terrible. But you know what? What's more terrible? And I think I can say that with authority. What's more terrible? is for somebody to live their whole life as a good person and then die and go to hell. Because God didn't create you for hell. He created you for himself. To be in a relationship with himself. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall short of that. Like, the, you catch the falling short. God goes, here's your potential. Oh, it's awesome. I've been waiting for you for a gazillion years. Here it is. Here's your potential. It's right there. Whoo, it's awesome. And then every one of us falls short of it. The only way to reclaim your potential is by acknowledging Jesus Christ as your Savior. When you, when you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you can begin the journey of actually discovering the awesomeness that God made you to be. And until then, it's just, life's going to be out of whack. It's not going to fit. And the, we, we need to redefine, we need to redefine potential. So, you know, in, our, in the flesh, in, in the world, we go, we, we look at a multi-billionaire, somebody that's at the top of his game or her game, you know, and we go, man, like they really hit the, they hit the big time. They really hit their potential. Not necessarily. You can have all of that and lose your soul and completely miss it. Right? Because your potential is this. Your potential is wrapped up in an intimate relationship with Jesus. You're meant to enjoy Jesus. And if you don't enjoy Jesus, if you're not satisfied, fully satisfied in relationship with Jesus, you're missing your potential. Because you were created to partner with God. <sighs> Wrap your brain around that one. You were created to partner with God. That's your potential. And the only way to reclaim that is by acknowledging Jesus Christ as your Savior. So will you do that this morning? 
you've not yet done that, I want to encourage you to make sure that you begin your relationship with Jesus today. And don't put it off. Don't put it off. It's too big of a deal. So I want to invite you this morning as we close to come to the altar and reclaim your potential. Don't let the thief steal it. Reclaim it in Jesus' name today. Would you? I want to just say this too real quickly because I know that sitting in this room are people I'm certain that you have um, either had an abortion or you've been a participant in one. And while that is just incredibly sad and heartbreaking for that to happen, I want you to know that God does love you. And see, in our world would want you to try to pretend like it didn't happen. And that doesn't work because you're just going to continue to feel the shame and the hurt and you're going to wish it didn't and wish and wish and try to wishing it away doesn't work either. The only way to properly deal with a, a sin like that is that you come to Jesus in humility and you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I ask for your forgiveness. And you know what Jesus does? He puts it under his blood. And then you walk away free. And you can walk away free. But that's where freedom is found. Freedom is not found in pretending something didn't happen. Freedom is found in acknowledging that it happened and asking for God's forgiveness. Freedom. So I want to invite you to do that this morning as well. I don't even know if that applies to anybody. I just thought I'd... I feel like it probably does. And it just needed to be said. Lord, I thank you. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Lord. Boy, that, you know, in one hand, Lord, this is a sober, sober topic because we're just fresh off of Parkland, Florida, and, and we see all the different stuff in the news, and, and it's just so right in our faces, God. But yet at the same time, it's so timely. And it's so amazing, Lord, that, 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 Lord, you would give us the chance to study this this morning. Thank you, God. And I, I thank you, Lord, for the incredible, just the value that you've placed on my life. Lord, I, I'm amazed that you thought of me before you ever made the world. That's really amazing, God. And, Lord, I say to you this morning, I, I, I want to be the man that you dreamed me to be. I do, Lord. I'm sorry, God, for having fallen short of the glory. Lord, I acknowledge that I did. But God, I come before you in humility this morning and I ask God for uh, your forgiveness and I ask God for a fresh infusion of your strength, God, that we as your people would live out the potential that you created us to have. Oh, Jesus. Yep. I pray, Lord, that you give each person here this morning a fresh encounter with yourself. And we ask this in your holy name. Amen. We're going to close with this song. Um, I love this the message of this song that God takes out of the ashes 
and he makes something glorious out of them. And this morning, if that's you, that's me, I know I got ashes. I think we all have ashes. <laughs> I, I encourage you to bring those to the Lord and ask him to turn those into something glorious today. So would you stand with me and, and as the worship team leads us in singing, our altar is open here. We can come and process this stuff before the Lord, okay?